Uh, I don't know about you, but each each year I do uh, my own taxes. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time, and uh, I'm very meticulous about it. It's uh, for whatever reason I have this like fear that I'm going to get audited, and so I keep everything and I keep all these records and I print out everything and I put it in a big folder every year and I have all this stuff. And then I get to the end and I go and I submit my taxes and I do my whatever, and then I go and I pay like two hundred dollars for audit defense. Uh, and I've done this every year. I go and pay, and what it is, is if I ever get audited, I hand all my stuff to this company, and they go in my place. They go, and they take your stuff, and they go for you. And so, I, to me, it's worth the like, $150 or $200 I pay for it, because I don't want to have to worry about it. I don't want to have to worry that if it ever comes that I have to go and stand before the, the, the government about my taxes or whatever. I want somebody else. I love the idea that somebody else would go for me that's an expert, that knows what they're doing, that can look at all that stuff and they can go stand for me because the reason is real simple, is because I know I'm not an expert. And I know that I don't know everything about it and I definitely want their help. I definitely want the advocate on my behalf to go stand in my place and go, we'll take care of this, you don't have to worry about it and we'll be the one that answers those questions in doing that. And so I really love that idea of an advocate, an expert standing in my place going for me, answering those questions, doing that on my behalf. And in fact, just when I stop and think about it, the truth is um, I would love that for pretty much everything in my life, not just my taxes, that someone would stand in my place in a whole lot of ways and a whole lot of things because I know there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know and I don't know very well and I'm not an expert on it. And so the idea of someone coming alongside and standing in our place and being that advocate for us is a very comforting idea. And that's actually what we're going to talk about this morning, because as we're working our way through Hebrews, and I've been saying this is a sermon letter written to early Christians in the very first century, and it's a sermon letter telling us in the midst of the struggles of life and the hard things that are there, it's written to a church that is struggling through great persecution, and the big idea of Hebrews is the way in which that you rest in the midst of the difficulties of life is look to Jesus. That Jesus is better than everything else. And that's really the kind of banner statement over the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And when we're struggling to find rest in a world where we are weary and we're struggling with the things that are going on, the only way in which that is found is by resting in who Jesus is and seeing that he's better. And so what we're doing for Advent is we think about Advent, this means arrival. And we come up to Christmas, we're, we're thinking about the first coming of Jesus. We live in between his first and second coming. Uh, hopefully waiting his second coming. But as we're doing this in Advent, what we're doing is we're just looking at selections in the book of Hebrews, and we're talking about how Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of all these things that God is doing. And so today, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the better high priest. He's the advocate that stands before God on our behalf, and he does so perfectly. And as we look at this text, we're going to look at how uh, the author of Hebrews talks a lot about the Old Testament priesthood and how Jesus is better and how he's the fulfillment. And there's a lot of things uh, that he says here that shows us just how glorious and beautiful Jesus is because of that. But some of this is far removed from us. If we're just honest, as we start to read through it, we're not real familiar today in the way that we operate with the Old Testament priesthood and the way they were when this letter was written. Right? The people who were reading this letter when it first came, they knew all about the temple and the way it worked. That's kind of foreign to us. And so today, the way I want us to think about this as Jesus being our better high priest is first, I just want us to ask the question, why do we need a high priest at all? We're going to talk about what that was in the Old Testament and how that even pertains to us today. 
And then secondly, we're going to consider how Jesus is the better high priest. Or really, we should be saying in all of these, he's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect brother. He's the perfect revelation. He's the perfect of all the things we're looking at. But how is Jesus is the perfect high priest? How is he the perfect high priest? And then lastly, what difference does that make in our lives? And I think it makes a lot if we understand what it's saying here, right? So why do we need a high priest? How Jesus is the better high priest? And then lastly, what difference does it make? And so I'm going to keep this short at the beginning about the high priest in the Old Testament. Because I think sometimes we can get lost in the details and we start to look at all these things of the way the high priest worked in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills that. And we can be left with like, I learned some things and I saw some connections, but I missed how it pertains to me. And so what I want us to do is just spend a few minutes on that, but then think about even the ways that we actually need a high priest in our own life, even if we don't recognize that. And so the first thing I want us to do is just sketch for you real briefly the high priest in the Old Testament and what was happening. And so when this letter was written in the very early first century, uh, most think this was written in the 60s AD, uh, temple worship had been going on for 1,500 years with the Jewish people. It was something that was ingrained in their culture, and they knew all about it. It was very relevant to early Christians hearing this. They had been to the temple. They had seen it. They knew what went on there. They had been part of that. All of those things were there. Uh, most scholars think that this was written in the 60s AD because uh, of what happens in 70 AD. You know your history at all of Jerusalem and the temple and what happens. In 70 AD, the Roman uh, general Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And when he did, he destroyed the temple as well. And so what most scholars believe is this was written prior to that because there's so many connections being made of what happens in the temple and how Jesus fulfills them. And if it had been destroyed, then why would they write so much detail about all those things being fulfilled in Jesus? And so most think that the temple was still happening. Temple worship, the high priest presiding over it, animal sacrifice, all those things were still going on. And so they had the background to understand the connections he's making that maybe we don't have today. And so let me just sketch that for you real, real briefly. If we go... To Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Did you know that? It says before he created anything, he knew that in giving us real choices with real consequences, that sin was going to enter the world and that he was going to come and Jesus was going to save us and bring us into this relationship with him before he created anything. And so from the very beginning, if you read in the Bible, at the very beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he creates man, he puts him in the world, they sin, God makes the promise, I'm going to bring a savior through your seed, Eve, that is going to fix this situation, which he knew before the foundations of the earth. But before Jesus will come, Galatians 4, 4 says, Jesus comes at the fullness of time, when everything was right for him to come, which would be thousands of years later, before he would come, God is showing the world what he's like, and he's pointing ahead to what's going to happen. And he's working through in all these ways. And so what God does is he chooses a people for himself. Out of Abraham and his descendants. And he calls the people. And he makes them into a nation. And he gives them uh, a way in which to worship. And he gives them his word. And this is what it looks like. And there to be a light to the world to show what God is like. And as part of that, he institutes worship. The way in which a sinful, broken people can come before a holy, righteous God. 
And it has to do with the temple, and there's a calendar of certain things that they're going to celebrate, and at different times of year they make uh, sacrifices. And he sets up over that worship one of the tribes that comes from Abraham's line, right? There's this 12 tribes. The Levites become the priests who oversee this. And there's a high priest that kind of stands over all of them. And so this is the way in which a sinful people approach a holy, righteous God. And so when you read through the Old Testament, there's all these things about sacrifices and killing animals and sprinkling their blood and all these kind of things. If we read it today, and you've never been to maybe a foreign country or a third world country where maybe there is still some animal sacrifice going on, it seems really weird and really foreign. You start reading through the Bible and you get to those read through the Bible in a year plan and you get to Leviticus and it's talking about sacrifices and animals and sprinkling blood and it's easy to be like, what is going on? But part of what God was doing in this was a way to show how a sinful people can approach a holy, righteous God and he can be near. And so in these sacrifices, you would come and you would come before God and you'd come to the high priest who's presiding over it and you bring your sacrifice, and you confess your sin, and you would lay it on this animal. And you'd say, because of my sin, I deserve death. Right? The wages of sin is death. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. And I deserve this, but God is allowing this life to take my place. And you would lay your hands on it, and you'd hand it to the high priest, and they'd slit their throat, and the blood would pour out, and they'd sprinkle the blood, and they'd go through this whole thing. And it actually tells us that right here in Hebrews as they're talking about it. If you look at it in uh, right there in chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Right? That's what it says. The high priest is there standing before God and the people, and you offer your sacrifices, and you go before them, and you go through this whole thing. And it's showing that we are a sinful people and God is holy and righteous. And so the setup was you went into the courtyards of the temple and then there was an inner area that was the holy place and then in the back of that was the most holy place and that's where God's presence dwelt but no one could go in there. And it was showing you that there is a, a break in our relationship with God because of our sinfulness. And so this went on and on and on and you'd make sacrifices year round and the high priest would stand over but in this, what it tells us in Scripture, what it tells us right here in Hebrews, is that this is kind of a stopgap measure that is showing and pointing ahead to what God would ultimately do in Jesus. Right? If you look at Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 11, it says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if this system that was set up in the Old Testament was perfect and actually fully dealt with our sins, there would have been no reason for Jesus to come. But here's the thing I'm trying, driving at here. This was always the plan to show you and point ahead to what Jesus was going to do when he came. It was always a shadow of the reality that would come. It was a stopgap measure. It was never there that it was going to deal completely with sin. And part of the reason was the high priest was himself sinful. Right? Look at the beginning of chapter 5 there in verse 2. He, talking about the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
because he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Do you hear what it's saying? The high priest, too, was a sinner. And yes, he's making sacrifices on behalf of the people, but he's also making sacrifices for himself, because he, too, is a sinner. And what it shows all the way through in this whole system is they would do this over and over, year after year, day after day. But they had to continue to do it. Because you were coming to confess your sin, to remove the guilt from the sin that you had just done, and you would do that, and then you'd get up, and you'd walk away, and what would happen? He said again. Right? They actually had a day for that as part of the temple worship. The day of atonement at the end of the year, all sacrifices would stop, and the high priest would go, and he'd sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And basically what he was saying is there's all these sins that we've not covered in our daily sacrifices and all that we're doing. God, would you please forgive us of all this? And it was this holy day in which they came before God in this way, and everything stopped. And the high priest would only on that day go into the most holy place, under kind of the cloud of incense and all this stuff so they wouldn't see God's glory. And he'd go in and he'd sprinkle the blood and he'd ask for forgiveness of the sins of all the people. And God would allow that. But what it was doing in every step of that way is kind of working in the past, right? Like the things that just happened. But as soon as they leave, as soon as the high priest walks out on the day of atonement, people are sinning everywhere. I was thinking about it. It's kind of like when I try to clean my house. I have three boys and four dogs. Friday afternoon, I clean the floor in our house. And I get it out, and as I'm doing it, as I finish it, I get to the very end, and I get done, and I go, it's going to last about six minutes. Right? Because you go and you open the door, and the dogs come running in, and the boys come in, and they drop all their stuff, and it's right back to where it was before. That's kind of what it was like. Right? You're making sacrifices for your sins in reverse, but then immediately it all starts back up again. And so the Old Testament system was done in that way. But what it was is you were coming and you were making sacrifices, you were acknowledging that God is holy and righteous and we're not. And that's the system that was in place. Now, how does Jesus being our great high priest help us? You can hear all that system, you go, well, we don't do that, never seen that, never been to a temple like that, never done that animal sacrifice, Jesus now putting in it. Who cares? Right? I mean, if you read through that, you can kind of go, well, what's, but here's the thing that I want you to consider. The heart behind the need of going to the high priest is the exact same for us today. The heart that's behind that, I want you to think about this. What happens when you blow it? in your life. And what I mean is, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, you have to call the credit card company over and over and over because they mischarged you for something. I don't know if you've ever had to do that. Uh, that may or may not have happened recently in my house. And you make those phone calls and you call and they say, yes, we'll do that. You go, great, thank you. And then they don't do it and you call back and you call back and you call back. And maybe the fourth time you're not as nice to the person as you should be. Right? Have you ever done that? Am I the only one that's ever been like, ah, what are you doing? This is the fifth time I've called, and you get frustrated, and you kind of blow it. What do you often do? I think a lot of times we blow it, and we get off the phone, and in my case, maybe I call my wife and go, you're not going to believe these credit card people again. And what do we do? You plead your case. You go, they were so rude to me. 
And they were so ugly. And I may have lost my temper a little with them, but they were really ugly, right? Have you ever done that? I actually see people do it now on social media. They'll go, I went into the store and people were really rude to me and they were really ugly and maybe I wasn't nice to them, but then everybody comes underneath and they go, yeah, I've been there too, they're awful. You were right to be angry. And people kind of validate us in what we're going through, right? And so what we do is we go to other people in a lot of ways, we argue our case. We want validation from the outside. Yeah, well, but I know what you mean. Yeah, I would have done the same thing, man. Oh, yeah, I feel better, right? What are we doing? We're arguing our case. We're trying to make it feel bit right. It's kind of the same thing they were doing when you go before the high priest and you confess your sins and you say, right? We do this all the time. We don't go to the temple. We don't go and slit the animal's throat and lay our hands on it and go through this whole thing. But we know the heart behind it. And we blow it at different times. But the problem is, when we do that, and we argue our case with somebody else, and we get them to make us feel better, and they go, yeah, I would have done the same thing. It's kind of like the going to the temple, right? It doesn't actually remove any of it. You're still sinning, and there's still the issue, and there's still the thing underneath. I was just reading an article this week. Tim Keller just wrote a new book on forgiveness, which I've only read about a third of it, but I would wholeheartedly recommend it to you. It's great. But in this book, he's talking about that no amount of kind of telling yourself you're okay will ever actually do it. See, we argue our own case to friends sometimes. Actually, a lot of times we argue our own case in our own mind. Well, I'm just justified to do that, and it's okay. We tell ourselves that, right? But what he says in this book is he's like, no amount of doing that actually ever brings true healing, true forgiveness. That is not internal. And we need someone outside of us to tell us. But then he goes on to say, and the only way that we can ultimately ever get that is if it's a divine forgiveness. We desperately need God to look up us and tell us it's okay. And so what he's kind of doing in this book that's really helpful is he talks about in our culture, we've, we've embraced this lie that as long as you're good with yourself, it's okay. You be you, and you decide, and what you feel, and it's all right, and just tell yourself that you're forgiven, and tell yourself it's okay, and assuage your guilt in all those ways, and he's like, that will never work. And so listen to the way he says it. He's talking about how no amount of self-acceptance will ever be enough, that we actually need someone outside of us. He says, no one can avoid basically turning your life into one big trial in which you're arguing and trying to prove to other people that you are good rather than bad, you are lovable rather than unlovable, and you're trying to prove yourself, and you cannot rest in your own evaluation. You have to get it from the outside. You need someone to pronounce you, to say you're okay. That's why we go argue our case with other people. And so we do that all the time. We do that all the time. Right? We go and we try to argue our case and we try to say those things. And it's kind of like the Old Testament priesthood. You would go and you would confess your sins, but then you'd get up and you still have this issue. And so it's here that the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the better high priest. Jesus comes to bring an end to this system and do something far better. And so I want you to think about how Jesus is the better high priest. 
And so if you're reading through this and you start to look, we read from the end of chapter 4 down to about halfway through chapter 5. But if you read through Hebrews, really chapter 6 and chapter 7 talks a whole lot about this priesthood. And it starts to talk about, when you get to the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you read that, and you don't know fullness of the Bible, and you start to read that, you go, what are they talking about? Melchizedek is a priest that pops up in the Old Testament just briefly, with Abraham, way back when. And the author here talks about Melchizedek being this type of Jesus for this reason, right? In the Old Testament, God sets up the priesthood, and they're from the tribe of Levi, they're Aaron's descendants, and they're the ones that take over. But in the Old Testament prior to that, this is this guy Melchizedek, and he just comes. He just shows up. And nobody's appointed him the priest, and he's the king of Jerusalem, and he's a high priest, and he shows up, and what it tells us is he has no genealogy. Nobody knows where he came from. They just know he's the priest of God. And Abraham makes a sacrifice to him. And so what the author is saying with all this stuff about Melchizedek, don't let this throw you when you're reading through Hebrews, is Jesus is like Melchizedek because he doesn't have a beginning. He wasn't appointed by God in this broken system from this tribe, in the tribe of Israel, a Levite. Jesus has always existed. Right? It says in chapter 7 and verse 16 that he has an indestructible life. Right? It says... He's become priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You know what it's saying? That Jesus has always existed. And in the incarnation, what we've been talking about the last few weeks, he steps down and he takes on humanity to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But he has always existed. And when he becomes man, and he's fully man, and he's tempted in every way that we are, but yet without sin because he's fully God. And he's fully God, and he's fully man. And he's not a sinful, broken high priest that has to make sacrifices on his own behalf. He's God himself come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he steps in. And he's going to be the better high priest. He's going to be the perfect high priest that comes to step in and take our place and to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so Jesus, when we start to talk about how he's the better high priest, He's gone through everything that we've gone through. We talked about this last week. He's our, bre- our better brother, right? He's the perfect brother because he took on humanity and he goes through everything that we've gone through yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but yet he doesn't give in to it. And so as such, he can, like the, the broken, sinful high priest, could uh, also kind of know what we're going through. It says he too is beset with weakness. Jesus knows exactly what we're going through, but not because he's beset with weakness, but because he's held perfectly under the pressure of what it likes to be a per- what it's like to be a person. And he is the perfect high priest in that regard. He knows everything you've gone through, but yet without sin, because he himself is God. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing I want you to think about is the difference between what Jesus does and what the high priest was doing in the temple. And so if you look here in chapter 5, in verse 7, it says, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus is walking on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation 
to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's the eternal high priest. It has no beginning and no end. And look at the way he says he does that. He comes, and in verse 7 it says, He offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. You know what it's talking about there? Hours before Jesus will go to the cross, he has the upper room discourse. You can read about that in John 13 to 17. And then he says, we must be going. And he gets up and they go to the garden of Gethsemane. You know the story? And he goes out and he says, stay up with me and we're going to pray. And Jesus says, I'm going to go over here. Would you guys stay up and pray with me? And they all fall asleep and blow it. And he goes over to pray. And what does he say? He says, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, please tell me. What he's saying is, if there's a way that I can stand between people and you, Father, that I can be this perfect high priest that's the intermediary between a sinful, broken people and a perfect, holy God, if there's any way that that can happen without me bearing the wrath of God for the sin of the world, I'd like to know. That's just really what he's saying. And you see the fullness of Jesus' humanity there. He's, he's tempted, and he's struggling, and he's wrestling with God on it. And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And he gets up and he walks to the cross. He willingly becomes the sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that is without sin. That is going to stand in between God and man and our sinfulness and God's holiness. And he walks right into it. And it tells you here in verse 8, And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He's not a high priest like the Old Testament. He's not offering a sacrifice of animals and their blood and sprinkling it that God would forgive the sins that he did. He himself becomes the sacrifice. And he willingly says, I will take on the sin of the world and I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself and I will bring it to nothing. We talked about this last week, that Jesus is our perfect brother has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. That he knows everything that you go through, and then he willingly walks to the cross, and he who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. And he takes on the sin of the world, and all those that would put their trust in him, and he brings it to nothing. And God accepts his sacrifice, and he gloriously raises him from the dead, and now he stands at the right hand of the Father as our perfect high priest. Now here's the question. You go, yeah, okay, I know that. I know the story. Hopefully you know that, the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. And our guilt is removed because of what Jesus is in. So why is he our high priest? No more sacrifices are needed. He's done it. So why does it say he's our perfect high priest? Well, look at what he tells us. What is he doing now? the end of chapter 7, look at verse 23, 24, and 25. It says, The former high priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what is he doing now? <clears throat> Our perfect high priest, who did for us what we can't do for ourselves, who became the once and for all sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, 
What is he doing? He says he lives to make intercession for you. But that's his job. His full-time job now is to intercede on your behalf. Now here's the part where I think you got to think a little bit about what he's doing. I thought about this for years, and I probably had a poor understanding of it for a long time. Oftentimes we think of him interceding for us, and we think of like a lawyer. Or I do, maybe you don't. I watched a lot of Law and Order in my life, so maybe that's my frame of reference. But the idea that the lawyer stands up and says to the judge, please have mercy on my client, or argues our case for us, or intercedes, or stands in between, and maybe he's a mess, right? But Jesus has finished the work. And he's done for us what we could never do for himself. When he lays his life down, and you put your faith in Jesus, you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so you start to go, well, what does he do as our perfect high priest? He's not arguing my case, going, hey, Father, I'm sorry. He was on the phone with the credit card company again, and it's kind of a mess. And would you please have mercy on him? Right? That's the way I always thought of it. He's standing and stepping in and going, he's still a mess. He's still a work in progress. But Jesus has already done the work, and he's finished it. And so he stands interceding for me before the Father, so that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And he sees me perfectly clothed in his righteousness. And he stands there for me because of what he has done, and he covers it completely and totally, and God looks on me, and he sees the beauty of the glory of his Son. I can't even fathom that. How beautiful and glorious that is. That we serve a God that is like that. That we have a high priest that is that great. That is that wonderful. Even in the midst of my mess, and as I struggle through, and as God is continuing to bring me from one degree of glory of another, he stands there on my behalf, and I am wrapped in his righteousness. That's what our high priest is like. And he's perfect in every way. And you and him is the way God sees that. Now we know, right? You know, I know, I'm not perfect. I'm not in the fullness of everything that looks like that. I'm still in the process of positionally what Jesus has said I am and what he's going to bring me to be. I'm still in that process. But as he stands as my intercessor, he's got me. Because he has paid for all of my sins. Jesus isn't pleading for our mercy in those moments. He's demanding justice because he's already paid for it. How gloriously wonderful that is. That he is our perfect high priest. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? And there's two things that I want you to see here that are wonderful. That's right there at the end of chapter 4. So chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is, he's still alive, and he's still functioning, and he's still in his place because he's been gloriously resurrected. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We're going to sing before the throne in just a second. Before the throne of God, I have a perfect high priest. And what it says in the middle of that song, I love it, is when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within I look and see him there, the one who took away all my sin. 
When you know you have a perfect high priest who has done for you what you can never do for yourself, when you are tempted to spare, you hold fast to the confession of your faith because it's not in you, it's what Jesus has done. That is good news. That is so great that that is true, that he stands ever there for me because of what he's done and who he is, and he is sure, and I can trust him in that. Oh, that's so great. Hold fast to your confession when you're tempted not to believe that's true. But the second thing is look at the next few verses. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help or find grace to help in the time of need. You know what that says? Hold fast to your confession because you have this great high priest, but then come to him with everything because he knows everything you're going through. He knows everything that you're dealing with. He knows every temptation in your life, and he has resisted all of them perfectly and fully, and he lives to intercede for you. His job is to now help you and provide you with grace in your time of need. You know how amazing that is? That in everything that you go through, and you go, I don't know how this is going to work, and I don't know what this is like, and I'm frustrated, and Jesus stands and says, I got you. I know every bit of it. Even the beautiful picture of the, the Old Testament, right, there was this, this, uh, you couldn't go to the Holy of Holies. You couldn't come into the throne room of God. And in Jesus, he says, come. You can come directly to the Father through me and all things, and I will meet you in your time of need, and I will provide you with the grace. Right? Hold fast to the confession of your faith. You know what it says? What the scripture says? That he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. And that means today means in the things that we're struggling with. And you come to him and he says, I will provide the grace that you need today. And I will continue to bring you from one degree of glory to another. And so I hope that you hear the vital relevance that Jesus is your perfect high priest right now today. Because he stands for you. And he loves you. And he is working in your life. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you are our perfect high priest. That in our need, and in our struggle, and in our separation because of our sin and our rebellion, that you have come to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, and we thank you. I pray that we would see that afresh today. That I pray for each person in this room and the things that they're dealing with, and the struggles they have, and the things that are going on in their lives, that they that you would remind them that you know every bit of it, and that you stand there as their perfect high priest, calling us to come to you in all things, to find grace in the time of need. I pray that we would trust you more and more each day with every area of our life. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.